I should like to call your attention this evening to that uh, section which we read together just now from the Gospel according to St. John in the 7th chapter from verse 25 to verse 36. Now, I'm taking this particular section as a whole because, as it must have been obvious to you from the reading, it does give us one picture of our Lord. We've been looking at this seventh chapter of John's Gospel for a number, a large number of Sunday evenings, and we have been doing so because it gives us such an extraordinary picture of the reaction of his contemporaries to the Son of God. Or if you prefer it in other language, we are studying it because it is a picture of unbelief. Now, there were several pictures here. The first picture at the beginning of the chapter was the picture of the unbelief of his own brothers. Then we had a picture concerning the unbelief of the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Then we had another picture referring more to the common people who had come up from various parts of the world to the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem. Now, here in these verses 25 to 36, we are given a picture which, in a sense, gathers together all these groups and shows us how they reacted to our Lord, what he did, and what he said. Now, there is nothing which is so completely wrong and fallacious as to think that this matter of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ or not believing on him is just a matter of opinion. Now, that is the view that is commonly held. People think that uh, this question of whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, and the view that you take of Christ or may not take of him, well, they think it's purely a matter of opinion. That as men differ in their opinion on politicians and political parties and their teachings and labels, so they differ about their view of Christ. Men differ in the same way in their view of literature, and of art, music, and everything else. Just a matter of opinion. Oh, you may like it, or you may not like it. Now, I say that there is nothing which is so tragic as to think that belief or unbelief is just something like that. Just purely a matter of opinion. Indeed, the whole object of this paragraph, as it is the whole object, in a sense, of the Gospels as a whole, is just to show us that belief or unbelief is not only not a matter of opinion. It is not merely a matter of intellect and of thinking and of reasoning. It is something which is altogether deeper than that and exists at a more fundamental level in human personality. Indeed, as I want to try to show you tonight, the case which is made in the Bible everywhere, Old Testament as well as New, Gospels, Epistles, everywhere else, is just this. That this question of whether we believe or do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is something that is at the very center of being. 
It is at the deepest and the profoundest level in the whole of our makeup. For me to put it as briefly as I can tonight and more or less summarize what I could argue at greater length. According to the Bible, unbelief, failure to see that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and the Savior of the soul, that he came into this world in order to seek and to save that which was lost, and that he did so by dying on the cross on Calvary's hill, the failure to see that he and he alone is the Savior, and that there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved, that, according to the Bible, is due to one thing only, and that is sin. This, according to the Bible, is the result of the fall, the result of sin. It is the result of men's estrangement from God. Now, that's the biblical case from the very beginning to the end. It's concerned about men and life in this world and the chaos that we see in society. What's it all due to? Here is God's provision. Here is God's answer. Yes, but people are paying no attention to it. Why not? Ah, that's the whole problem. This unbelief, this rejection of the gospel is the most tragic consequence of the fall. This is the most terrible consequence of man's estrangement from God. So you see, it's not just a matter of opinion on the surface. As I say, like differing political opinions or opinions about other matters. No, no. This is something that is central, vital, deep, fundamental. Resulting from the most devastating effect of all of the fall of men as the result of his rebellion and his sin. Now then, that is the case which the Bible makes out everywhere, from beginning to end. And of course, there is nowhere where all this is seen quite so clearly as in the pages of the four Gospels. It must be that in the wisdom of God that that is why we have these Gospels. Not only that we may learn about him and see these portraits and get an understanding of him, but equally to show us this thing in men that makes him reject him. In other words, the reason why he had to come. The story in the Gospels is a story of a tragedy. It's not merely the story of the coming of the Son of God and what he did. It's the story of this, that he came unto his own and his own received him not. The tragedy of the rejection of their own Messiah by the Jews in their blindness. Now there, this whole case of the Bible is seen, as I say, in focus. Here is the great drama of it all, when the Son is actually in the world and man rejects him, doesn't believe in him. That is, I say, the whole story which is unfolded with such dramatic power in the pages of the four Gospels. Well, now, here we've got all that, you see, in miniature, as it were. We've got one of these cameos, these pictures, one of these situations in which you see the whole thing. It's repeated many, many times, but here it is, and we're concentrating on this particular one. 
Now those who were here last Sunday evening will recall that we were then considering these same verses. And there we approached it like this. We looked at this unbelief that is displayed in these verses as it is a manifestation of the dogmatism of unbelief. The assurance with which they speak and the utter wrongness and falseness of what they say. You remember it, don't you? How these people said, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. We know the assured results of criticism, the assured results of the latest scientific knowledge. We know. We analyzed that tragic Foolish, ignorant dogmatism, whichever is the characteristic of unbelief. We saw, as I've just been saying, that it's based on nothing but ignorance, yes, but also on the refusal to inquire even. They know they're so certain that they don't even ask. They were so certain that Jesus had come from Nazareth, they didn't ask him where he was born. If they had, he'd have told them he was born in Bethlehem. They didn't ask him. We know. Jesus of Nazareth. Son of Joseph and Mary, how can he be this fellow? We know. And you see, it was because of their dogmatism, their dogmatic ignorance, that they refused to listen to him. And even though he was telling them some of the sublimest things that have ever fallen upon the human ear, they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. And they remained in the darkness and the misery of unbelief. Very well, now then we come back to all this. And we're looking at it tonight from a different angle. What do we see? Well, the thing I want to emphasize tonight is the deep and the radical nature of unbelief. It's here on the very surface. Did you notice as I read those verses that unbelief is obviously something that is deeper than reason and deeper than instinct even. Let me show it to you. Take verse 26. Or start at verse 25. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, some of the common people of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is very, the very Christ? Now, let's take that. Here are the common people speaking. And you see, they're beginning to reason. They've got a kind of horse sense in these matters. And on the basis of that, they begin to reason. They say, now, well, what is this? Uh, can the rulers really know who this man is? They don't like what he's saying, and uh, this is the man we know they've been plotting against to put him to death, but here he is, he's speaking boldly in the very temple, and they're saying nothing. Do they know that this is the very Christ? Now, let's not uh, exaggerate that. Uh, I don't believe for a moment that these people had a true faith in Christ. No, no, they hadn't. But there was something that was beginning to stir within them, and was beginning to make them inquire and to say, well, who is this fellow? What is it we know? They've said they're going to put this man to death, and yet here he's speaking boldly, and they say nothing. Is he the Christ after all? It was beginning to dawn. There was something stirring. Or take again what we are told in verse 31. 
There I read that many of the people believed on him and said, When the Messiah cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Now that's a bit of reasoning, isn't it? This was their argument. They say, we've all been looking for years for the coming of the Messiah. And we know that when the Messiah comes, there will be signs of his majesty and of his glory. He will work miracles. He will do mighty deeds. Isaiah 35 tells us that. The lame man's going to leap as a heart and wonderful the eyes of the blind are going to be opened. Marvelous things will take place. Now wait a minute, they said. When the Messiah comes, can he possibly do more miracles than this man has been doing? Haven't you seen them? Haven't you heard about them? The miracles that he did when he was up here in Jerusalem the last time, the things we hear that he's been doing up in Galilee. Well, they said, I wonder whether this has been considered as it should be. Now, this is reason, isn't it? This is common observation. Something is stirring in these ordinary people. They say, but look here. Is it conceivable that the Messiah, when he does come, can do more? Isn't this the Messiah? You see, there was an awakening. A kind of intuition, if you like. A kind of instinct in the common people. And their reasoning on it. And it was a very good and a very subtle question to ask, wasn't it? The facts, they say, they're speaking very loudly. What about him? Who is he? And then for me to take you just for the further proof right outside this particular portion we're on this evening, take the question in verse 51 that was put by Nicodemus. He and his fellow members of his Sanhedrin were considering this matter. And the, common, and the common opinion was that Christ was to be condemned. But Nicodemus saith unto them, Doth our Lord judge any man before it hear him, and uh, know what he doth? Now that was a fair statement, wasn't it? He said, wait a minute. You're not going to condemn the man before you've tried him, are you? You're not going to dismiss him before you've heard him? He said, that's not in accordance with our law. Let's be fair at any rate. Let's put into practice the law in which we honor, uh, take honor and which we glory. Now he says, be reasonable. But in spite of all this, they persisted in turning him down. The Pharisees and scribes did so. They wouldn't listen to the arguments. They wouldn't listen to the reason. Listen to the facts of the people. No, no. Be fair, says Nick. No, no. Away with him. Get rid of him. Plot to kill him. You see, in spite of the fact that there was an element of conviction and that they were beginning to come to a dawning realization that there was something unusual about him, it was stifled. That's the sort of thing unbelief is. It isn't a matter of just intellectual opinion. It isn't a fair hearing being given to a case. No, no, there's something deeper. Reason insists that he should be considered, examined, evaluated. No, no, says unbelief. My dear friends, don't we all know something about this? Haven't you been in a service and you've suddenly felt conviction? You've been shaken. You may have been frightened. You may have suddenly seen yourself in anticipation upon your deathbed and facing God in judgment in eternity and something within you is beginning to give way and you're beginning to look at Christ but suddenly you shake it off and you say, no, no, 
You turn it down, something deeper still in you takes control. And all the arguments and the representations and all your emotion and instinct and feeling, it's all silence. Unbelief is not a mere matter of opinion. It's a terrible and a vital and a deep force in human nature that is stronger than the mind and deeper than reason. But let me say another thing about it. This paragraph shows us that unbelief is something that is deeper than all our superficial differences of opinion. That's the thing that comes out so eloquently here. Did you notice uh, what we are told in this paragraph, indeed in this whole chapter up to this point? Have you noticed the unanimity with which they rejected him? His brethren, we are told in verse 5, they didn't believe in him, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Those who were brought up with him, shared his home with him, knew him most intimately. They didn't believe in him. The common people who had gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles, they didn't believe in him. The Jewish teachers didn't believe in him. The people of Jerusalem, the common people of Jerusalem, they didn't believe in him. There's a strange unanimity here. But notice it at its most subtle and most extraordinary point in verse 32. Listen to this. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. Them. The Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Do you get the significance of that? The Pharisees and the chief priests they were not only traditional enemies, they were bitter enemies of one another. They not only differed, they hated one another. Pharisees and chief priests, Pharisees and Sadducees, they were always quarreling, traditional opponents, always on opposite sides. Ah, yes, but when it comes to a question of confronting Jesus of Nazareth, there you made one coalition immediately. Pharisees and chief priests sent officers together to take him. Unbelief seems to be a very profound thing, doesn't it? Later on in the Gospels I read this. That day, Herod and Pontius Pilate were made friends together, for formerly they'd been at enmity. Same thing. Herod, you see, was a kind of puppet king coming from the Jewish background. Pontius Pilate, governor representing the Roman tyranny and power and authority. And they disliked and hated one another. And they quarreled and they didn't meet. Ah, but when it's a question of confronting Jesus of Nazareth, Herod and Pilate were made friends together. Unbelief. It's just a matter of opinion. Oh, of course I consider this Christ. I listen to the clever people and the brains trust. And Well, my opinion. Opinion? Here is something I say that is deeper than all opinions and makes men one in a common denominator, deeper than all the superficial differences. All unite together against him. And my dear friend, it's still the same. 
And I want to make this clear to you as I value your immortal soul. I'm not here to be unfair. I'm here to preach the gospel to you and to save you from yourself. You're rather proud, aren't you, of your unbelief? You say that it's rather intellectually demoted to believe any longer in the Christian faith. Oh, nobody of real standing who counts intellectually and any longer believes that. You say the intellectuals, they no longer believe in this Jesus and you're amongst them. Ah, oh, but wait a minute. The intellectuals are not the only people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight. The greatest ignoramus in London tonight, he doesn't believe either. A man standing on the street corner who's never read a book in his life, has never been near a university. You know, the man who really never completed even his primary education. He can't read, he can't think, knows nothing about philosophy. He's standing on the street corner tonight with his hands in his pockets and a cigarette in the corner of his mouth and his bodies are with him. And this is what, just, what they're saying. Look at those people going to chapel. Nothing in it. Sob stuff. Dope of the people. Play it out. Nothing in it. Unbelief isn't confined to the intellectuals. The biggest fools in the land are still saying that there is no God. Be careful, my friend. You must realize the company to which you belong. The great men, you say. I know certain men. They're greatly, they're great moralists. They're great benefactors. They're great scientists. They're great teachers. They're university dons, some of them. And they're very good men and they lead exemplary lives. They are the people I belong to. Wait a minute. You also belong to the Ruiz, the drunkards. The wife-beaters, the adulterers, the murderers, the foulest mouths and the foulest hearts that are in human breasts this evening. You're in a strange company. No, no, don't you think you're exclusive? Don't you put yourself in some very fine category? Herod and Pilate, Pharisees and Sadducees, all become one here. Everybody seems to be agreed. In not believing in him, unbelief is no more the hallmark of intellectualism than it is the hallmark of ignorance. Unbelief is no more the hallmark of understanding than it is of the crassest and the most hopeless inability to perceive. What is this thing? What is this thing that afflicts all, every type and group? It's not only true of white men, it's true of black men. It's not only true of men who live in the north, but those who live in the south, east and west. All the political divisions vanish. All the cultural divisions are extinguished. The most benighted hot and tot in Africa. The men in the bush who's never seen a book. And your brilliant philosopher. They're one in not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is this? But there's another element in it that I want to hold before you. The deep underlying antagonism to him that is so obvious 
in this whole paragraph. Let me show it to you in two verses in particular. Take verse 30, for instance. Then they sought to take him, to capture him, to arrest him. Why did they do that? Well, he just said, I know him, I know God, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Their reaction to that is to try to take him. Read it again in verse 32. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things against him, such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Why did they do this? Oh, there's only one explanation. They hated him. This is not a matter of opinion. This is not just a problem in the mind, it's in the heart. The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? This is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Here he is speaking words such as men never uttered. Here he is speaking these glorious words about his relationship to God. And they take desire to take him. Notice it. The chief priests and, and the scribes, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they conspire together to arrest him and to kill him. Why? Ah, the people are beginning to, leave, to believe in him. It was their reaction to that, you see. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things. Many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Why this violent reaction? Oh, it's just that old pride in the human heart. You see, they thought that he was going to become popular, that the people were going to believe in him, and if they, if they believed in him, they would no longer believe in them. And after all, we are the leaders, we are the authorities, we are the pundits. If they're going to believe in him, what happens to us? Our job, our everything, our self-respect, our dignity, our status. You know, there's a terrible lot of that still in the human heart. It's not an easy thing for some people particularly to fall at the feet of Christ and say, I believe in him. Any fool can do that, they say. Can I come down with my great intellect, with my great knowledge of philosophy and all my understanding? Am I to come down as if I were but an ordinary man? Am I to take my seat, get down on my knees by that ignoramus from the heart of Africa? Yes, if you're to be a Christian, you've got to. And the heart of man doesn't like doing that and he hates Christ. For Christ makes us all one. You see, he says, in other words, there is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Am I not an exception with my great brain? No, no, you're a sinner like everybody else. Get down! That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated him. He made sinners of them. He showed that there was no final difference between them and the common people. And their pride rebelled. And they hated him. And the modern man dislikes the idea that he's got to look back nearly 2,000 years to the one who was the Savior. How can that be true when he believes in evolution and in the advance of knowledge and in the upward reach and march of the human race? Look back, says this. No, no, says man. You're insulting me. So he hates him. 
They sought to take him. They sent their officers to arrest him. That is the nature of unbelief. This isn't a mere matter of opinion. This is a vital power in man, something in his heart at the center of his being, which is deeper than all reason and understanding, deeper than all differences and opinions, something controlling. It's a passion, it's a lust, it's a driving force. Unbelief is a state and condition which controls man and of which he is the helpless victim. That's the biblical case, as it is exemplified in this particular paragraph. But come, let me come to a second point, which is this. This terrible state and condition of unbelief leads to a most appalling ignorance. And the ignorance is revealed in this one section, sometimes explicitly, in the plain, unmistakable teaching of the Lord, and then in other points, by implication in the account. Let me just note it to you this evening. Unbelief, I say, leads to an appalling ignorance. What kind of ignorance? Well, the first is an ignorance of God. Did you notice verse 28? Listen. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You know me, do you? And you know whence I am come, do you? I am come, not of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. That's it. Ignorance of God. Why doesn't the man believe in Christ? Ultimately, that's the answer. He doesn't know God. You don't know God, said our Lord. Who is he addressing? Well, the teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes, the preachers. He says, the trouble with you is that you don't know God. You know, as you think, a number of things about God. But that isn't to know God. You don't know God, he said, in his real character. God as he is. You don't know God in a spiritual sense, which is the only real sense. And his argument is that because they don't know God as he is, they don't see the need of him. They think they're all right with God. They think that they, as the teachers particularly, are well in with God. And they're telling other people how to be right with God. But he says, you don't know him. If you knew him, you'd see your need of me. They'd never felt their sin. They didn't believe in it. Our Lord depicted the Pharisee, you remember, in his parable of the Pharisee and the publican that went up into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stepped forward and said, I thank thee, O God, that I am not as other men are, and especially like this fellow. I fast twice in the week. I give a tenth of my goods to the poor. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't ask to be forgiven. He doesn't believe in sin. Why? Well, he hasn't sinned. He's perfect. He's all right. He knows God, and he knows all about He's on good terms with himself. It's not surprising that a man like that doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is it? 
No man believes in Christ until he sees himself as a wretched and a vile and a hopeless and a condemned sinner. He is the man like the publican in the parable who didn't even dare to look up but smote his breast and said, God, have mercy, be propitiated towards me, a sinner. That's the man who goes down justified. You don't know God. And my dear friend, if you don't believe in Christ tonight, I'm telling you in the name of his Son, it's because you don't know God. You think you do, but it's your own imagination. You've got your own ideas about God. They're not derived from the Bible. You don't believe the Bible. You've rejected revelation. You've taken philosophy in its place. You say you don't believe in sin. You don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. You have God as a God of love, you say. And you don't believe these things. And that's why you don't believe in Christ. You don't know God. The holy, living, just, absolute, eternal God, whose eyes are a flame of fire, and who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. You don't know him. And because you don't know him, you reject his son. You've never seen any need of him. And his atoning death, and the power of his resurrection. It's this appalling ignorance of God. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Have you any notion of the living God? It is a fearful thing to be in the hands of the living God. Says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had any sense of that? Have you any dim conception? Some vague glimmering of a notion of that eternal light which is God? Job had done a good deal of talking until God began to reveal and manifest himself to him. Then he put his hand hurriedly on his mouth. I had heard of thee with the hearing of the ears, but now! And he's got nothing to say. Do you know God, my friends? Do you really know the living God in a spiritual sense and meaning of the term? The unbeliever says our Lord is ignorant of that. Let me hurry to a second point. The unbeliever does not know that he's in God's hand. But he is there. Let me prove it to you. Take verse 30. Then they sought to take him. But no man laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour was not yet come. They wanted to arrest him, and yet they couldn't move. Their hands seemed to fall down helpless at their sides. They said, we must take him, but they couldn't move. They were transfixed. They couldn't take him. Why? Because! Because what? Because his hour had not yet come. They're in the hands of God, and they can't move, though they want to move. They didn't know it. Secondly, in verse 32, the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said unto them, listen to his reply to that. Yet uh, a little while am I with you? He really meant six months, you know. Six months. Yet a little while. For another six months am I going to be with you? And then I go unto him that sent me. These poor unbelievers knew nothing about that. They didn't know they were in the hands of God. That everybody is in the hands of God. That everything is in the hands of God. 
that the God who made the universe is still controlling it and that nothing can happen apart from him. In the hands of God, you may decide to arrest him and kill him, but you can't move. His time hasn't come. Why? Well, God's time hasn't come and everything is in the hands of God. Oh, poor unbeliever. Listen to me as you value your eternal soul and its destiny. Do you know that at this moment you're in the hands of God? That your life is determined, your birth was determined, your death is determined. All your life is under God. You are in the hands of God. Try and get out if you can. You can't do it. It's impossible. Everything and everyone is in the hands of God. My times are in thy hands. Of course they are. You see, we are only given a relative liberty. God has set a circle round us. And there is his absolute almighty control. He even controls evil. He permits it for a while. But he's controlling it on the outside. Everything is under his hand. Nothing can happen until he says yes. You know, I say again, you're not just a spectator in this matter of belief. You're not just a looker-on in the match that's being played on the tennis lawn. No, no, you're in it, you're there yourself. And the great empire has his eye upon you. Everything is determined and controlled. You can't escape him. And that is where unbelief is so tragic and so foolish. You cannot escape God. You've got to die like everybody else and stand before him. And all our modern knowledge and science and understanding doesn't make the slightest difference at all. My dear friend, you are under God and under his eye. And you can't, if you go up to heaven, says the author of the 139th Psalm, he's there. If I make my bed in hell, lo, he's there. Wherever I go, he's there. The hound of him, the God, who is universal, omnipresent, everywhere. We are in his hands. And you can't escape him. But oh, the tragedy of small pygmy men who defy such a God and expresses his pompous, arrogant opinions. He doesn't know that he's in the hands of the one he's criticizing. But let me hurry on. Take a third point, which is this. He knows nothing at the same time of God's great plan of salvation in Christ. Listen to it here again in these same verses. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. Then when the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to take him, Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while am I with you. Do what you will. I am to be here another six months. Until that other feast comes, Then I go unto him that sent me, but not before them. They knew nothing about this, but he knew. He knew that he had been sent into this world to carry out God's great eternal plan of salvation. The plan that was made before the very foundation of the world, the Lamb slain 
From the foundation of the world, he was in the council when it was decided, when the only way was seen to be that the Son must take upon him human nature and come into the world, be born of a virgin, take upon him the sins of men and die and bear their punishment in his own body on the cross. He knew it. Every moment, every step was planned. And he knew that it was not to happen until the end. Did you notice the repetition of that in Luke 13? Today and tomorrow and the third day. Don't go up to Jerusalem, said these men. Herod, that fox, is waiting to trap you and to kill you. It's all right, he said. Don't get excited. No prophet ever dies outside Jerusalem. And my time is not yet come. Today and tomorrow and the third day. Yet, a little while am I with you. He knew it all. The plan was perfect. The plan of God. They knew nothing about this. And oh, this is the tragedy of unbelief. Men and women know nothing of this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. He sent him into this world. What for? To die. To taste death for every man. And do you hear the son saying at the end, Father, the hour is come. What shall I say? Deliver me from this hour. No, no. For this hour came I unto this world. He came to die. He came to lay down his life for us and for our sins. He came in order that his soul might be made an offering for sin. He came that he might in his own body bear our sins on the cross of Calvary's hill. The plan of God, planned in eternity, executed in time, with the moment determined, it must coincide with the offering of that paschal lamb. It must be, not now, six months hence. He knew. They didn't. They didn't know he was, nor why he'd come. And that is why they persisted in rejecting him and in their unbelief. And that is why men and women still are in unbelief. They don't know God. They don't know themselves. They don't see their need. They don't know that nothing and no one but Christ and his death can save them. That God has planned it, that it's there. They don't know it. They're utterly ignorant of it. And the last thing they don't know is this. That they are outside the kingdom of God and that they cannot enter as they are. Let me read these words to you. Our Lord said, Yet a little while am I with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. You shall seek me, and shall not find me. And where I am, thither, ye cannot come. What's he mean? Well, what he says is this. He's going back to the Father. He's going back into God's eternal kingdom. And they can't get there. Even though they seek, they cannot. And you know they did. It is said that at the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, 
Many of these very people seeing the Roman army coming and seeing the devastation that was about to follow, they cried out for their Messiah. Where is he? Why doesn't he come and deliver us? They sought him. They couldn't find him. Why? Well, because they'd already crucified him. Because they hadn't recognized him. Ye shall not find me. Ye shall seek me and not find me. And where I am, thither, ye cannot come. He is in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of glory. He's inside. And the unbeliever is outside, but he believes that if he wants to, he can get inside, but he cannot. It's impossible. Thither ye cannot come. If you don't believe in him, you're outside and you'll remain there. You may get frightened at the end, and you may knock at the door, but you'll never get in. Did you remember how he said that in Luke 13? Are there few that be saved? Here's his answer. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunken in thy presence, and thou hast caught in our streets. But he shall say unto them, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. The unbeliever doesn't know that. He doesn't know that there's only one way of entry into the kingdom of God. And that is in and through this blessed person who was speaking in the temple in Jerusalem. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if you're not in him, and if you don't enter by him, you're without. You can cry and shout at the end and appeal to God for mercy, but you'll not be received. There's only one way into the kingdom. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ and by his blood and by his atoning sacrifice and death and by his mighty glorious resurrection and intercession. There is no other way. Ye shall seek me, but not find me. And whence and where I am, thither ye cannot come. My dear friend, had you realized that? That if you don't believe in this Lord Jesus Christ, you are outside God's kingdom and its blessings. And if you die in that condition, you will remain everlastingly and eternally outside. Ah, but says a man, I don't believe in such a God. You do as you like, but you're in his hands. That's what the Son of God says. I'm not saying it. Your modern philosopher says he doesn't believe in such a God. Let him not believe. He'll be outside. Will it help you that you're in his company? There he is with all his cleverness. He's outside. He doesn't know God. The revilers, the blasphemers, the haters of God, the murderers, the adulterers, they're outside and will remain there. Did you realize that you are there? Oh, the appalling ignorance of unbelief. 
It's because they don't know things like this that they're outside. What is the cause of this condition? Well, the answer is here. In verses 35 and 36, listen. When our Lord had said to them, You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am thither ye cannot come, then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? Is he going to go to the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Greeks? What manner of saying is this that he hath said, You shall seek me and shall not find me, and whither I am thither ye cannot come. What's it mean? Well, is there anything in the whole range of scriptural literature or anywhere else that is more pathetic than that? Our Lord was telling them about his return to God and to heaven and to glory. And they say, where's he going? Is he going to leave Palestine? Is he going to preach amongst the dispersed of the Jews in other countries? Is he going to Macedonia? Is he going to teach the Greeks? It was a bit of sarcasm. This was a great joke. He says he's going. Ah, they said, he's beginning to realize he's a failure. He's got to put up his tent in another place. He's got to go to another fair to attract another audience. Where's he going? They had no idea and no conception that he was speaking spiritual truth, not material and geographical truth, but spiritual truth. Oh, that's the final cause of unbelief. That's the trouble with men in sin. He's dead. He's spiritually dead. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he. Why? They are spiritually discerned. He materializes everything. Christ says, I'm going. I'm going back to him that sent me. Ah, they said, he's going to Greece, is he? He's going to Macedonia. Perhaps he's going to Rome. Perhaps he's going to Egypt. On the material, human, earthly level. And he's in the realm of the spirit. And he's talking about heaven. But they can't get there. Everything's material. Watch Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, he's a political agitator. He's a pacifist. He's the man who doesn't believe in war. He's the man who doesn't believe in the color bar. Ah, that's Christianity. That's Christ. Everything material. And the spiritual content they don't understand. And they know nothing about the cross and the atonement. And the resurrection and the glory. And they think in this world only. And not in the next. And in the realm of the spirit. That's the trouble, the final trouble with unbelief. It lacks the spiritual faculty. You, says the Apostle Paul to the people at Ephesus, you, hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. My dear friend, in your unbelief, do you realize that that is your position? That is why you don't believe in this blessed person. That is why you don't understand Isaac Watts when he says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. 
That's why you're not melted and moved and humbled. That's why you don't look up into his face and worship him and give yourself to him and take up your cross and go after him. It's because you're spiritually dead. You don't understand spiritual truth. It's foolishness to him. And I'm here sweating my life away on a hot Sunday night. You say, why don't you stop, man? Why have you gone on as if there wasn't any heat tonight? Why? I'll tell you why. It's because I know you've got a soul and that you're going to hell and that your eternity's in the balance. Spiritual truth. That's why. What is the heat of a Sunday night like this? When an everlasting eternal soul is in the balance and eternal destiny is involved, God knows I'd sooner sweat myself to death in this pulpit and collapse and faint rather than take the risk that anyone should go out of this service ignorant of God in his holiness as the judge of all the earth. Ignorant of men in sin. And the final destiny of the ultimately impenitent. Ignorant of this amazing love of God and of Christ. That though we were his enemies and rebels against him. Sent him not only into the world and its shame. And to mix with men and women drunkards, revilers, prostitutes, murderers. The common people not only face all that and live in its midst. But go to the cruel death and the cross with all its shame and agony and ignominy. Bear the sins of men that they might be reconciled unto God. My beloved friend, awaken. See this terrible thing that's holding you in its clutches, that is stifling your reason, your intuition, your best feelings. Everything that stands before you and all the glory of Christ and the story of the martyrs and the saints and the best people that have ever trod the earth. Can you still dismiss it all and reject it all? I plead with you. Realize where you are and what the truth is about you. Awaken. Turn to God. Acknowledge your ignorance, your blindness, your folly. Ask him to have pity and to have mercy upon you. And by his spirit to give you a glimpse of this glorious redeemer. In the beauty of his person. And the perfection of his atoning work. Ask him. And though you may have rejected him until this evening. And spat upon him. And the glory of his perfect plan of salvation. He'll forgive you all. He'll open his arms wide and receive you. He will say, come, enter in. My son has died even for you. While we were enemies, we were reconciled unto God by the death of his son. Unbeliever, realize your state. Fly out of it. Fly to Christ. And he will receive you. For he is still saying, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise 
cast out. Come unto him and be ye saved. Amen.